As you guys all see, we're starting a new series this week, and it's going to be a two-week series. Brad's going to finish it up next week, just before the fire retreat. Um, if you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one now. This is a good opportunity. Um, as many of you know, I wasn't here last week, so I haven't seen many of you since October. It's been a month. Uh, I was gone, actually, on a family trip. For those of you who don't know, I went to uh, Lead, South Dakota, which if you don't know is in the Black Hills. If you know where Rapid City is, uh, it's just northwest by about an hour and a half. I went there because it was my grandparents' 50th anniversary. What a long time to be married. That's awesome. And we went to celebrate and just hang out with them. My granddad loves to fish. And so I went up there with me, my mom, and I think there's a photo. Me, my mom, who's in the back right in the black sweatshirt, my aunt, who's in the photo in the middle, my three cousins, which are down below, my grandma, and my granddad. This was a photo that I took when we went on a hike, awesome, awesome hike that we got to do. Uh, it was Mount Harney is what it used to be called. Now it's called Black Elk Peak, tallest mountain in South Dakota, and it was an awesome trip. During the trip, though, my three cousins in the middle, the one in the backs, Helena, the one in the middle is Monica, and the one in the front is Marius. I wish I had a better, better close-up photo, but I don't. Um, they constantly could not stop fighting over who I got to spend time with during the trip. Don't get me wrong. This is a fun thing to some extent, right? My cousins absolutely love and want me to spend time with them, and it was a blast. But I ended up in situations where we'd be going on a car ride because it was an hour to go anywhere, and all three of them would come to me. And if you babysit, you probably know this. Or, or if you have little siblings, you might know this. But they, came, they would come up to me, and all of them would say, I want to sit next to you in the car. Each and every one of them was like, I just I want to sit next to you on this hour drive. It's my turn, or you got to go last time. And they would all look at me with their puppy dog eyes, waiting for me to make a decision on who got to sit on me in this car ride. That's a very stressful decision for me. Because I like each of them a lot, and I want to be fair, and I want to try to give each of them time. And so usually I'd make a decision based off the last time. One of them would be a little sad. But the reason I tell all of you this is because the youngest one in the front, Marius, he just turned seven on the trip. And I had found out that he now loves car games. His dad taught him a bunch of car games, my uncle, and he absolutely loves them now. And so... He prefers a few different ones. He loves Slugbug, and he always calls no slug back, sadly for me. He loves I Spy, and his favorite, which I had never heard of before. Let me know if anybody else has heard of this. He said Fire Hydrant, the game Fire Hydrant. Does anybody know what that is? No one? Okay, so I'm glad it wasn't just me. This is his favorite game to play in the car. As we're driving around from town to town, each person gets a side of the car. And you get a look out one window and they get the other. And you try to count however many fire hydrants you can. You can't double count or anything. And the goal is you win if you count the most fire hydrants. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be good at this game. Yeah, I got contacts and glasses and I have a worse vision, but I think I'll be good. So first block that we enter into a small town, right? Small towns, it's lucky if they have two fire hydrants probably. I count three fire hydrants. I think, I'm on a roll. He gets one. He feels a little bad, and he's played this a bit more than me, so he really wants to win. So next block comes around, I see another two, and I get to five, and all of a sudden I just listen, and I hear him go, 11! 
I'm like, wait a minute. One, 11. I say, there were 10 fire hydrants on that block? Man, they must have a lot of fires in this town. Obviously, this wasn't the case. My little cousin, who's seven years old, like most little kids, really, really, really wanted to win, and he wanted to impress his cousin and have fun with him. But he wanted to win so much that rather than play fairly, he figured he could trick me into thinking that he had jumped to 11. And he was smart because he knew I was looking out the other window. He knew I wasn't looking over at his window, and he thought, he won't know. There's no way he'll know. Obviously not the case. I immediately turned to him and said, you didn't count 11, did you? He looks at me and he says, yes, I did. Trying to convince me as much as he can. And so I turned to him and I said, Marius, if you didn't count 11, 10 on that block, you're lying, right? And he looks at me and says, I'm not lying. I, I counted 10. He tried as hard as he could to convince me of this. And I thought, and I sat there, and I said, what a crafty little kid, right? Who was like this as a kid? I was. I know I was. I, was, I had an older brother. He was always better at all the games. It seemed like the only way I could win was by telling some small little lie, some crafty little cheat to get on top. Um, and so we can probably all relate to this at some point, whether we admit it or not. Uh, we've probably told some small lie, whether to friends, family, or to ourselves. And this is the idea that we're going to be talking about in this series called Playing with Fire. And so, even though he was a seven-year-old child, it still hurt me when he lied to me. Because I was really looking forward to this drive with him, and I was looking forward to being able to play this game with him. But even though it was just a small lie... It hurt me because now he had done something wrong against me, something evil, right? And so I had to talk with him about it, but there's more to it than just small lies, right? We all know that a lie is bad. We oftentimes let ourselves start maybe with a small lie because it doesn't seem bad. White lies, we oftentimes like to call them. We say, this is something that'll be good if I let them hear this now, uh, but these small lies can develop into bigger lies. And it grows and grows and grows. And before we know it, it's everywhere. And so if we actually look at our lives, we'll probably notice that we actually lie to almost everyone in our life, if not everyone in our life. Whether it be our teachers. Yeah, I'll turn that homework assignment in next week. I was really good at that one in high school. I bet some of you are. I convinced a teacher one time that a homework assignment that was due two weeks late, I couldn't do. I convinced her to give me a two-week bonus to turn it in. That's terrible. That is absolutely terrible. Don't do that to your teachers. But teachers aren't the only. Our siblings, right? Just like with my cousin, we oftentimes like to lie. We like to cheat. We like to find our way to get on top. Not only that, I think probably one of the most challenging, for me at least as a high school student, that we probably all deal with, is lying to our parents. How easy is it if our parents ask us to do the chores to simply say, yes, do them, and then go off and play games for the next three hours. Go off and be on social media. 
Go to YouTube, right? And then the next day rolls around, and we know we didn't do our chores. And our parents ask, did you do your chores? And you think to yourself, oh, crap. Because you know you should have done them, but you decided not to. Instead, you decided to spend time on other things. And now, because you told them you would, you've lied to them. And maybe that's small. Maybe it's something bigger. Maybe you tell your friend or your parents, you're going to go hang out at a friend's house. I'm going to go hang out with this person, that person. But in reality, what we're doing is going and spending time with that guy or girl they don't know about. And we're going and we're going to go spend time with the person they don't maybe even want us to because maybe they're not good for us. But we do it anyways and we tell them a lie because we don't want them to find out. And so we all understand that this isn't good. We all understand that this is bad, but it's something that's almost impossible for us not to do, right? It seems like there's nothing that we can convince ourselves of or think of to get out of this rut. And so even though we all understand this feeling that we have of either, either guilt when we tell a lie or of hurt, right, when someone lies to us, it just doesn't seem like there's any way out of it. But I think that such a big thing that we need to realize is that these aren't, we need to stop seeing them just as a lie. What we're talking about is something quite literally that is evil, that, that spreads into each part of our lives and affects each part of our lives. And we know that this isn't what God intended. This isn't what he wanted. And it just doesn't seem like there's anything we can do to stop it. And that is right. There's nothing that we can do to stop this. And so this isn't a new problem. This is something that I struggled with. This is something that my parents struggle with. This is something that my grandparents struggle with. It's not anything new. And so what we're going to be looking at tonight, you guys can turn there, is James 3. We're going to look at the full chapter. And James here is actually writing uh, to the church. He's writing to the, the 12 tribes of Israel, actually. And at this time, uh, they were under a lot of persecution from the Roman Empire. And so they were meeting in houses, they were locking doors in their windows, and there wasn't a lot of structure to their meetings. And so they didn't know how to go about them, they didn't know who needs to teach, they didn't know who should be leading worship, they didn't know these things. And so a lot of people were just standing up and trying to teach, but they didn't know what to say, or they would say the wrong things, or they were doing it because it was a position that they felt would bring them a lot of honor for themselves. They were selfish with it. And so James is writing to them about what they say, and specifically we see James explaining the evil of our own tongues to them. And at the end of it, he shows a path to taming the tongue. And so if you guys turn, you can look at James 3, like I said, verse 1 here. And it reads, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. So right here, this is just the introduction to the chapter. And we see James begins by addressing his audience, the fellow believers, and he brings up this idea of taming the tongue by looking at what they're struggling with, right? The teaching. Teachers were highly elevated in the church, and they still are to this day. They're people who are held 
to a higher standard and will be judged more strictly. And he begins by introducing, or introducing the problem with it by pointing out that we all stumble, right? This is something that they would have been familiar with. We all sin, we all evil, none of us are perfect. And he points that out. He says anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect. So much so that if you are able to say things without fault, then your whole body you'll be able to keep check. Anything and everything you do can be steered and directed by simply what you say. And so he elaborates on this. We go to verse 3. He says, When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. Tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here, James points out the main problem that he's bringing up to them, that they're going to face. And he says specifically that the tongue is what controls much of our lives, to the point that he uses a couple analogies. The first being a bit in a horse's mouth. If any of you have worked with horses at all before, you know that that is one of the most important pieces of equipment because it's what allows you to actually ride the horse and allows you to control where they go and the direction that they follow. So, he says, is the tongue. The tongue is what steers your life. And that's why he's, if you can tame it, then it will allow the rest of what you do with your body to follow. But if not, then it will go to evil he points out. He says in verse 5, likewise the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. And he compares it, he says, to fire. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a file, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself fire by hell. He points out that what we say, what we do, our natural instinct as human beings with our tongue, is evil. To tear those that are around us down, not to build them up, but to use it to build up ourselves, right? Very much like my cousin. He wanted to win that game. He wasn't thinking about playing fair with me in that moment. He was trying to build himself up, even if it meant tearing himself down. And then he also describes that it's not just a small thing that he's talking about. He compares it to evil. He says that it's the same as it's set on fire by hell itself. He doesn't want this to seem like a small matter that we should just ignore. He points out that it does affect everything, every aspect of our life. And so as he concludes this section here, he goes to verse 9, and it says, With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. 
Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James here is bringing a conclusion to what he's speaking of on tongues about how they're evil by pointing out the problem of their, of their evil. He goes to God with it, right? He says, with our tongues, like what we just did, we praise God, we worship God. We come to church every single Sunday, we hear from Jeff, we hear from Tim, and we love to get all of this information and knowledge. Yet, when we leave church, when we go home, we oftentimes find ourselves doing the opposite, right? We'll lie to others. We'll tear them down. We curse them. And as James says, these are people made in God's likeness, people who God loves. This is not what he wants from us as his followers. And he uses a couple analogies to explain. He says, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring?" My brother says, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. He's pointing out that you cannot have both. So then what can we do? There has to be a solution, right? There has to be an answer. So far, we've seen James tell us it's impossible. There's nothing that we can do to tame the tongue. Like any other animal, we can tame but not our own tongues. And so there's a transition that he goes into here, and he transitions from his problem to the solution. And in the next section, uh, it's titled The Two Kinds of Wisdom. And this is important because he makes a contrast between wisdom that is evil and good wisdom. And, and he contrasts between the wisdom of earth and the wisdom from heaven, from above. And so it reads in verse 13, the first, and it says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you har harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you find disorder and every evil practice. So he points out the problem that persists in us. He says, what we know, what we speak of, is earthly. It's unspiritual. It's evil. And all we're using it for, as he says, is to boast, to deny truth. We tear people down with this. And so he goes on and he shows another type of wisdom. In verse 17 he says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. He concludes with these two wisdoms at the end of the chapter because it brings the solution here. There is nothing that I can do to tame my tongue. There is nothing that any of us ourselves as humans can do. But with God, with his wisdom to guide what we do, what we say, 
what we do and we say doesn't have to be evil anymore. It doesn't have to tear people down. It's not going to be a lie if we give it to him. Instead, instead what it shows is it's pure. It's peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. When we give that to God, when we say, I can't control my tongue, I can't control what I do or I say because I am evil, I am sinful, and we say, Lord, I want you to guide what I do, what I say, then it is for good. Then it is godly. And so there are three things that you need to take away from this, three things that are unbelievably important in this. The first is recognize. First, we need to recognize this in our own lives. We need to recognize it's evil. See how it affects every aspect, how it spreads and grows like a wildfire. It's not something small, but big. Whether it's your friends, your parents, your teachers, it will grow and grow and grow, and it can ruin those relationships. And we have to recognize that there's nothing that we can do, that there's nothing that we're able to do and stop. And from there, that leads us to the second. You need to repent. See this in your own life, and don't just ignore it. Take that before God. Lay it at his feet and say, Lord, please give me your wisdom. Please control and guide my tongue because I cannot do it. From there, we then also need to go to those in our lives that we have hurt. We need to go to our parents. You need to go to your friends. You need to go to your siblings, your teachers, and you need to apologize to them. You need to repent to them. And third, you need to ask. You need to ask God to give you wisdom, to help control. Ask him from the, for the wisdom from heaven. Ask him to control your tongue because we cannot do it. But if we're not careful, we'll end up telling ourselves that we can Oftentimes, one of the easiest things that we do is we tell ourselves, I can do this. I don't need help. But it's one of the biggest lies that our tongue tells us. There is nothing that we can do about it. And so we all need to recognize the evil in our own lives with this. Lay it before God and ask Him to take control. Because otherwise, it's just going to spread like a fire. Without his wisdom to guide us, without God's wisdom in our lives, we'll fall into our own earthly wisdom. And so as we go to small groups tonight, I want us to think about where we are with this in our own lives. Do we recognize this evil? Do we lay it before God? Have we asked him for that wisdom to guide us? So that way what we say and what we do is good and beneficial, and it doesn't steer us in our lives to evil and away from God, because there is nothing that we can do ourselves.
to stop this fire. We have to take it to God. We have to give him control over it. 